Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warrior, welcome back to Suncast. If you're new here, I want to thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That is, of course, your time. Today's entrepreneur and clean energy champion, Piper Foster Wilder, is co-founder and CEO of 60 Hertz. The conversation Piper and I engage in today really digs into her commitment to creating meaningful work for the people that work for her and the people with whom she works and enabling a transition to renewable energy while economizing the diesel that many communities on microgrids still must use. She's a thoughtful entrepreneur who has found her way to building a product as a non-technical founder that is technically helping microgrids and the managers thereof better utilize their assets. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, if for no other reason than really understanding how Piper came to the idea of her business and the realization that she needed to be in an entrepreneurial venture. If you like content like this, well, you are certainly in the right place. And I hope you'll just hit the subscribe button and the notify button if you're on that kind of a platform, because you don't want to miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out our more than 500 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com, where we've chronicled the rise of the industry and the intrepid entrepreneurs who make it so. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, if you, like me, have been waiting for an opportunity to hear from Piper again, because you loved her Tactical Tuesday, I do have Piper Foster Wilder back on Suncast. Piper, it's great to see you again. Hey, Nico. I love those uh, sunny earrings. I wore them for the day. I'm super happy. (laughs) I have so many things that I want to learn about what makes you tick. But I have a suspicion that there are some stories from maybe your childhood or young adulthood that influence kind of the way you think about your purpose and and how climate factors in. Can you take me back to some of the early conversations in your family or around the dinner table that you feel were formational in the way you constructed your sort of career ideology or even your environmental ideology? And and if those two matched that early? Well... I can't talk about the family dinner table without thinking about my my folks. And I really, mm. I am so grateful to say that I really hit the jackpot in terms of parents. Mm. Um, I know that a lot of people did not have that experience. And so it makes me truly grateful for the the wonderful people that Tad and Melissa Foster are and that they had provided a, an environment and a space in a childhood for me to, to grow and blossom in. And that just makes me want to give back. And it makes me wish that I was a better parent to Binget, my daughter, um, and is still striving every day for that. Our family culture is a lot of discussion. It's a lot of conversation. And 
always the news, always ideas around the dinner table. I think in particular to your question about interest in climate and how we can contribute toward a positive outcome. My grandfather, Grandpa Dean, um, mm-hmm. was a really larger than life figure in my life and in our, our family in general. And he was also, he loved Rush Limbaugh and he loved, I mean, it was it was way before the era in which we're living now, right? Like this is, would have been in the yeah. um, early 90s. Like I, I grew up on anti-Clinton lore. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was really just like the, 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 the zeitgeist of that era. Wow. And I remember discussing climate change in particular, global warming, as we called it then with grandpa at length because he firmly believed that all was in balance and all would be well. And this was just a big liberal conspiracy. Mm. And yet at the same time, I was, you know, I I knew how to read at that point and was um, finding information and um, really concerned about this, this notion of global warming. And so it provided a chance for real intellectual sparring even as a 10 or 11 or 12 year old over those years to, to have pushback and think like, well, how do we know what we know is true? At the same time, grandpa was a pilot and was teaching me about how planes lift off and, you know, really understanding the science behind, um, uh, it was that Bernoulli's th- uh, thesis, all the pilots will correct me. And so there was a real root in science. Um, it's just that the information perhaps was different even then, but it, it, it caught my heart and made me interested in our profession. That's fascinating. Do you recall the first time that you started thinking about specifically the clean energy sector or how energy was generated, like what called you in? I mean, we're peers uh, both in age and sort of experience. And as I look at the work that you were engaged in, it's not evident to me exactly when you felt this this call towards conservation until, uh, or rather towards clean energy until perhaps 2013 with uh, COSIA. Can you kind of walk me down that path? Yeah, I would say fell into it. I definitely fell into <laughs> it. Or maybe I was broke. And uh, and uh, so, so, so here, here was the story. I had my first job after college was working for a member of Congress from Eastern Washington, George Nethercutt, who um, was a conservative. And this was in an era before hyperpartisanship. And yeah. I don't think for that role, they had really vetted my own political background. Maybe I'm not sure I could have articulated it, even leaving uh-huh. college, which sounds crazy today. But when I first arrived, my first day at work, I think it became obvious that I didn't know the conservative talking points. Mm. And they would have Piper re-education hours on Friday in our Capitol Hill <laughs> office and like explain to me that we, you know, use certain vocabulary, like it's not the environment, it's habitat. I just, I think about the colleagues in um, uh, in Mr. Nethercutt's office and just such a, a warm and embracing and not sharp experience. At that point, I had, you know, realized that I, I probably wasn't bound for a life in D.C. and politics. And it was before the Internet, which makes us both feel really old, I'm sure. But had it not been before the Internet, I wouldn't have made this terrible mistake. Um, but so a best friend and I decided we were going to go to live in Barcelona. We were just like struck ah. by a lightning bolt that now was the time for Spain. And we were like, I don't know, 21 or 22. And because there was no Internet relied on the wisdom of a guy at a bar who said that you didn't need to have a work permit to live in Spain. So we bought the tickets and we went. And then there was like no way to get a job in Spain, um, except for doing things that you like couldn't tell your parents that you did. And so um, I think we were faced with an option of dancing on tables. Um, She ultimately became a nanny and I busked. I played my violin in the subway. And uh, that was, I'm not very good at violin, so I did not make very 
much money doing it, but it was this like incredible six or eight months of our lives. In Barcelona. In Barcelona. Phenomenal place, right? Like that was just such this a... Is what, what year, circa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it would have been 2002, three, four, five in that era. So, God, so straight three, out of college. Yeah, straight out of college. After that, after that year with, um, with Mr. Nethercutt. So of course, like the folks had to bail out. I think I borrowed a thousand dollars for the plane ticket to fly home and then recovered financially that summer living with my parents and mowing lawns. And, you know, they were probably wondering what they just spent all that money on a political science degree for. But at that point, the opportunity was to like get a job and within driving distance, because I certainly didn't have money for a plane ticket. And so that was Colorado Springs. And so the options were working for a financial planner in Denver or uh, this position at Rocky Mountain. Mountain Institute in Aspen. And so that was where life led. I, I, I felt that was the right choice. And um, the folks dropped me off and I began an internship at RMI. And that's how I say I fell into energy. That, that's really what led to it. And as I recall, one of the fun serendipitous things that happened when we posted on about on your previous episode was one of our mutual friends that we didn't know we had together. Scott Muller chimed in and he's one of both our favorite people. Uh, how'd you meet Scott? I like to say Scott was my first friend in Germany, um, uh, but <laughs> even though we, we he was also not German. Life evolved after that phase at Rocky Mountain Institute, and I applied for an Alexandra von Humboldt Fellowship, the German Chancellor mm. Fellowship. This is such a phenomenal program, and if any uh, listeners are just within 10 years of graduation from college, you're still eligible for a German Chancellor Fellowship, and it pays for research into whatever may be of your interest. One of my colleagues... Uh, developed a font, a typeface, a font. developed a font, wow. um, uh, an iteration on black letter. Other people have explored playground buildings. And I was a lot nerdier and studied um, uh, my, my, my humble ear or two uh, was actually studying land use planning for large renewable energy installations wow. and published a paper called Integrated Spatial Energy Planning about this and how the Germans, you know, decades ahead of the U.S. were already co-locating really significant wind structures or whatnot in transportation yeah. corridors where there wouldn't have been the same viewshed issues, let alone how the feed-in tariff er erased some of the same contention that we faced in our country. It's a fascinating fellowship. One that I know was super formational for Scott. He and I met in 2007, 2008 timeframe when we were going to some trade shows. And I was always asking him how he was going to these trade shows. And he was like flying business class <laughs> on the government, the, US, the German government's dime and uh, going to places in, in Spain and other parts of Europe, as well as in the United States, uh, like as a representative for this organization that uh, like you were with Ecologic Institute, he was with some other institute, I can't remember which. And I was just fascinated. I, I concur with you. Anyone within 10 years of graduating should check out the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, among many other opportunities that exist, mm -hmm. because they can be formational and you can leverage a lot of uh, shared resources to really uh, scale up your own understanding. So you eventually made your way from Berlin back to Colorado and spent what seems to be a fair amount of time in and out of sort of nonprofit and for-profit entities. What do you feel like you were developing as a skill set there? What were you honing over that? Uh, we'll call it like eight to 10 year period between Germany and founding 60 Hertz. I'm grateful for the prompt to reflect on that because a few things come to mind, but I think when I back up from it, what it really was, was developing a thirst to get things done. Mm -hmm. 
that that attending the meeting was far less interesting than the outcome of the meeting for me. And over that time frame, it almost didn't matter what it was that was getting done. I knew that this was any any of the activities, whether I worked for, um, you know, government energy efficiency programs or the SOPRIS Foundation or in helping, you know, I was employee number two at Amatis Controls. That what was such a driver was that feeling of contribution and getting better and better and, and watching and being an observer of people that I admired that seemed effective in terms of how do we actually get something done? It's very mesmerizing for all of us. Like our routines are mesmerizing. We're up, we're going to work, we're taking care of things, we're attending meetings, we're producing content. But is it valuable? Is it moving the needle? Are you actually getting something measurable done? And uh, I'm sure I still have a long ways to go on that. But that was, uh, those 10 years were formative. And in particular, I would point to things like, I am obsessed with failure lessons as a culture, we love best practices. We love to hear success stories. We love to celebrate all of the good work that's been done. And that's important, taking nothing away from that. But in my own uh, experience and my vantage is that failure lessons are far more important and that our willingness to share those lessons really help move forward the cohort in our, in our profession or in our industry. And so I think in particular about a role I had at the Sopris Foundation, it's a family office in Aspen, um, which I ran for several years. And the the founder, John McBride, is just still one of the, the greatest humans in my life. And he had a vision of hosting conferences for uh, municipal leaders, county commissioners, city council members across the West to bring best practices from Europe when it would come to sustainability. So we hosted several conferences and brought in speakers and it was really expansive. It was so fun to hear what kinds of tools for land use planning or engagement strategies or bike routes these European leaders were evolving that could actually be replicable in the American West. And so it was out of those Sopras Foundation conferences that I also fell in love with failure because when you hear stories about what went wrong that was unanticipated, then I think we possess a lot more content uh, and capital with which to do something better the second time. Given the breadth of experience and the conversations around the dinner table as a child and sort of thinking about where you wanted to take your career, what, I wonder what career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? You know, the driver for me has always been this question, how can I be a solution? I don't mean that to sound lofty. It really was. I kind of woke up one morning in the 20s wondering what I was doing with my life. And I realized that was the minimum viable that I could settle on. That in whatever capacity it would be, how can I be a solution? How can I help? I had been interested in policy change. I had been interested in politics. I had also been interested in fashion, which my husband finds hilarious because I, I really struggle with it today. But um, he, <laughs> uh, I thought maybe a fashion design career or, you know, something like that. So gratefully for the world, I did not go into fashion, um, mm-hmm. but but was probably led to the more cerebral sport of, of public policy, um, which has ultimately led to entrepreneurship in my case. Tell me something that is true for you that very few people might agree with you on. Mm. Well... It's not a popular, it's not a popular stance, but I I really feel that for all the self-help books and all the self-actualization and the currency of self-improvement, that is a particular driver in our culture and, and in our age group. I think there's a lot more that could be said about grace. 
Um, for mm. some of us, a higher power and under, an understanding of God is a way to access that. And again, it's um, it's really fallen out of favor. I am someone who goes to church uh, regularly. I, I feel mm. my prayer life is one of the most dynamic and renewing parts of of who I am and what I want to give in the world. And that the value of making space for grace to be the sun that is shining on our work and on our experience. I wish more people had a space for that because it is so dramatic and renewing and powerful. And I think it's ultimately a lot of the engine that is accomplishing all that's happening for, for us. And under this hyper pressure of accomplishment and being great and being visible and doing all that we can, I really do feel that my understanding of prayer, of the naturalness of harmony in our lives and in everyone's lives, and that we have a loving creator, those are beliefs that I hold very, very dear and think about often not really popular. So I hope I don't alienate anybody saying that, but um, I, I think there, I think we would all do to allow ourselves more grace. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I don't think that, that we can alienate folks. We can simply reveal to them how they feel about, about themselves or their own reflections or how they uh, want to align with others that either believe the same or don't believe the same things. Right. Because the people that are meant to work with us are going to be attracted to us only if we can get ourselves out there enough that they can find us. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that necessarily means you're going to find people who would be like, oh, I really want to work with that person. <laughs> <laughs> so true. The like-mindedness can't, that kindredness can't help but be yeah. found. Yeah. Well, similar to that, I know we've talked a bit about the doldrums as well as the heartache and the hard knocks of entrepreneurship. You have been in this venture now for more than five years called 60 Hertz. And I wonder... Now as an entrepreneur, a founder, someone who has given her heart and soul to more than just her husband and children, I don't know if there's a, a number one, but what are the, the chief headaches that you face as an entrepreneur in building and running this company well? <laughs> oh, Nico, how can I count the ways? I mean, I, I, have, I have a Google Doc card called <laughs> What I Have Learned Starting 60 Years, and it's just- Wow, um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And periodically, I'll just, you know, I try to do it once a month, just, you know, lay down some of these more painful lessons or, or if not, you know, just dumb things that wow. I did or should have known better or- uh, I feel like I need to have that, <laughs> to create a doc like that. Well, it's, it's cathartic and it's fun to look back on too, just to, to think of the things that seem so important at that time or that actually really were important. I should have paid better attention to. I was listening to another interview that you did and you talk about how you made the decision to put bounds around the, the work day specifically and that you like to hang out with your husband in the evenings. And that most often you're both sitting there with your laptop open more often than, than you would like. And I know that, that to be true for a lot of folks, but, but that you try to not have that be sort of work oriented How's that worked for you in the last two years since you kind of made that commitment? Yeah, much better, much better. In part also because I have a little one. And so Binget is four, mm. four and a half. And um, and she needs that time. And that's really precious uh, engagement yeah. at the end of the day. And it's really, I, I think also the second shift, as we often call it, after they get in bed. After oh, you yeah. Uh, it's just, I'm not the only one that calls it that. <laughs> well, it's such a, I mean, just talk about like joie de vivre killer. You're just like, then you're like, oh, good, I'm going to go answer the inbox. And like, you kind of do need to. But it's just, yeah, that's a total, I don't know. This is where I'm really curious around the next corner where we're all going to find ourselves when it comes to work. I think the pandemic has really created a lot of flexibility and sponginess in terms of what we allow ourselves or how much more able we are to constantly be adding value 
creating, being responsive. I'm wondering if email is dead in the midst of that, because then I diligently feel like I'm at times the only one responding to messages. And if you're one of the people I haven't mm. responded to, I feel really bad. But, um, you know, that there is. No, but I'm the, I'm the person not responding. You know, I feel bad. To me. <laughs> you were back right away yesterday. That was nice. <laughs> you were the first email in my inbox. <laughs> it was easy. I know. I know. Like mm. that's just, I mean, I think Slack uh, has revolutionized that WhatsApp to a certain extent. It's making it easier yeah. for us to, to just be responsive to people on the other hand. Are we being too responsive? Are we trying to do too much? And that's, again, where a bounded workday really does, like, we just do so much. We chase our tails so much. We we are responsive and producing probably far more than we need to be because no one can absorb it. I want to dig into that. When you say we're responsible for producing far more than we need to be, what do you mean by that? When I think about the blogs that our company has written, about the little videos that we produced at one point, about the even people that we thought we had to hire, there really could have been a moment of introspection. This is particularly an ailment for startups because the frenzy and the inorganic growth is such an incredible pressure that the immediate corollary can feel like, well, I just need to do more, just do more, just have more people doing more. And I I really now five, six years in, I'm wondering if that is actually adding value. It's mm -hmm. cliche to say do less, but do it better. So I don't yeah. quite mean that that's the counterpart, but I really wonder if we are overproducing and overgenerating because the the ability for our network, our, our sphere, our audience to absorb all of that or to do anything meaningful with it is, is diminished. Mm, that's one way to think about content. Another way to think about content is it doesn't matter if everybody else is overwhelmed with content, so long as the piece of content that you've created for the person that is your, that, that is your avatar reaches them and resonates with them. And that might be five people in the world. It might be 50 people in the world, right? And that for me is true now. And it has always been true about product marketing and service marketing to a certain extent, but product marketing is a numbers game. Mm -hmm. It is... How do you filter through the no's to get to the yeses? And it's like any sales. And how in a digital world, do you increasingly segment better the kind of people that you spend money to send your message to? And you can do that in two ways. One is paid advertising and the other is paid team members whose job it is to filter through the wheat and the chaff for email and other, and other methods. Yeah, no, that really does resonate. Okay, so let's take it from a different direction. So as a content creator, okay. then it's our job to push to the extent we can and it's quality. Then the onus comes back to each of us about what we consume because we've all been halfway through a podcast or in the midst of a book or, you know, halfway through an article, just really not getting the value. And then that hunger mm -hmm. for the value is still there. I always call it the library book thesis. I love <laughs> libraries. I just, I think they're holy places. I'm tragedy struck that lately when I go in, they're so empty. Um, yeah. But I believe there's like a great power of just being like, well, what do I need to find out about? What could I, what could I look into? Yeah. And just kind of seeing the book that falls off the shelf. I've had some pretty remarkable mind opening experiences with, with being receptive to the content that I need to have in that light. I completely agree with you. I have only because I run while listening to podcasts, do I routinely finish podcasts that uh, or have I finished podcasts that I don't like? I consume most of my knowledge through podcasts by hacking the process of like listening to Up First and listen to The Daily and listen to, so those are my news shows and I kind of stay relevant with that. 
so I can be interesting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also stay informed. But mostly, let's be honest, like it, we listen to and stay current with news so that we are able to follow conversations and, and be interesting and know what's happening in the world. And then if I'm trying to learn something, like I listen to this podcast every day called Marketing School. Mm. Eric Sue and Neil Patel are two uh, marketers that I follow it all the time. And when they created a podcast, I was just like, all right, five minutes a day. I'm going to listen to that every day. And there are still like their episodes they're doing and I'll be halfway through it. A five minute podcast. And I'll like stop my run and fast forward to the next episode. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, and, and that's where I see like uh, me as a creator for podcasts and others who are creating videos, they get offended when they see their pod, their download numbers or the view numbers not growing rather than saying, how do I actually know if the people viewing or the people who watch it all the way through are my people, Right. And am I conscious of the fact that every time I create a piece of content, podcast, video, otherwise, how am I refining my message? Hmm. Because that's the other piece of this is like creating content is like a leather strap for a knife sharpening, right? Hmm. You have Hmm. to constantly be thinking about honing that message and iterating on it to see what works. And if you are giving yourself containers like podcast interviews or webinars or video um, cadence that you maintain, then you can't not, right? You have to, you have to be able, you have to face the, the fear that most people have of saying something in a clear enough way that it begins to resonate with your market and putting it out into the channels so that you can get feedback. And really being coachable on that feedback or being receptive for that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. Mm. You know, what's cool is we have a, we have this amazing young lady that joined our team since you and I started working together named Sophie and she's repurposing like all of the video stuff that you see on LinkedIn is also her work. She's like going in and grabbing snippets and stuff like that. Nico, do you find people like Sophie on Upwork first and then trial and then hire or how are you conducting that? I found Sophie through a, a recommendation. I asked a bunch of people like, Hey, who would you recommend? And mm-hmm. I'm like you, I heard you say in that other podcast that you will meet someone nice in the grocery store. And you're like, <laughs> I want to hire you. Um, <laughs> So my sentiment and sociograph like hiring skills are not like super, super great. Mm. I have started to rely on filtering what I need through other people and saying, okay, I think what I need is this. And also through my wife and through Mm. uh, Cindy, who we hired as a, as a, as a um, contract executive to help me get my operations aligned. So I reached out to actually a guy who is a recruiter and said, I'm looking for this person. And he wrote me back. He said, you won't believe this. And he sent me a YouTube channel or a YouTube link, private link. And it was this young lady who made a video of why she should work for me and that she was really excited about it. And so I interviewed her and I interviewed her, but I said to him before I ever interviewed her, I was like, I'm going to hire this girl. This is amazing. Hiring for talent. That is not like your, it's not a core like sales team member or whatever. If you're hiring for um, even virtual assistants, the, the things I've seen people successfully do and what we're migrating towards is being really good at nailing down the scope breaking it into digestible pieces that you can, that you can AB test among multiple people at a relatively low dollar value. That's interesting. A test. If somebody's job is post a, a LinkedIn post, right? There are a couple of things at least that you need for a LinkedIn post. It's some understanding of how the LinkedIn algorithm works. So there's sort of a test around like, do you understand how LinkedIn works? Can you show proof that you've actually posted for someone else in a cadence that with 20, in my case, 27,000 followers and a long history of what our sort of viewership and likes and engagement are like, do you have a similar experience showing that you can maintain or grow a LinkedIn account? 
that's almost like an application, like send me screenshots of accounts that you've worked on. Second, it's a writing mm-hmm. test and that's just sentiment. It's like, I want you to listen to this five minutes of audio and craft a, a LinkedIn post that you think would accurately represent a takeaway or, or just wow. something interesting that you think Great. would get attention. Yeah. It's not a huge, it's not a huge bite on their time, but no. so indicative. That's right. And then for me, part three, and this is all three are filters, is can you do video or and or audio editing? And so to be able to sort of apply for the role of social media manager, they would need to say yes to all three, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or really impress me on one of the three. Mm-hmm. And so Sophie, no LinkedIn experience, but able to summarize content and able to create content. Mm. And so two out of three and like a high number three, high which value. is really good. Yeah, yeah, really good at video editing and like willing and able to, to, to experiment. And then if, I think if I had a fourth, the filter would be, are you a single platform expert? And so more and more, I'm seeing folks saying, hire someone who is an expert on LinkedIn. Don't hire someone who's a social media expert, right? Someone who is like, the, they have the deepest knowledge possible on LinkedIn. And then hire someone for Instagram. That is a separate mm. person. And what I need now, what I'm honing internally for Sophie, which she's posting on all of our platforms is she'll be our marketing manager at some point, right? She's already de facto a marketing manager, but to be a manager, you manage both processes and people in my book. And so she's going to manage outsourced resources. So yeah. she'll, she and I will start to work on over probably Q4. What does it look like to hire these resources? And it's one of the reasons we brought Graham on as our operations manager. He does this software already and has for the last three, four years running his own, his own business. And so he's going to work with her and I on how do you scope it properly on a platform like Upwork or freelancer.com. And there's lots of websites out there. Yep. And then how do you filter for the right person and how do you test them to know they got the good skill set? And then kind of like you also mentioned in another podcast, how do you hire them in a way that minimizes your downside, right? So you say, hey, look, looks like you've got the skills, but we're going to do a 30 day test. And it's a very finite thing. And I'm not going to, I want you to do this. I can guarantee that I'll give you a certain amount over 30 days or a certain amount per hour, which do you prefer, right? And I always let someone choose, right? If they want per hour, I'll just limit their hours. If they want a monthly thing, I'll try to you know, tighten their scope so that they're really clear about scope, scope, scope creep because that happens all the time in entrepreneurship. Hmm. All too often. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- those are great tips. I like it. My sense is that our audience really is on LinkedIn, which is unusual in my experience that you've got a, such a platform that, that more people are on. But do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that there are only, in my opinion, Two platforms for matter that two platforms that matter in B2B. So Mm. the two platforms that matter in B2B are Twitter and LinkedIn. Twitter is not something you can really outsource. You can have someone on your team tweet to your company page, tweet to your personal page about news. But Twitter is like you want to post four to five times a day. I don't do this. I don't do this well. It needs to be a habit. It needs to be something that you like are thoughtful. You're like, just read this article about. Here, I'll, show, I'll give you a, a great example. Like I now think about this in book market because I'll probably tweet like, I'm going to interview this guy from Infinium. What do you know about electrofuels, right? Anybody want to school me on electrofuels? Bloomberg wrote an article. There's an article on Bloomberg about how Bill Gates and others helped shape the climate policies in the new law through back channeling with legislators. Big surprise, right? Hmm. <laughs> you know, and I might say, I might tweet that out and say, big surprise, like, um, any, did you read this? Anything surprise you? Uh, anything, anything news here? Right. But that's, if you can do that, you're both a curator and a thought leader 
because there's tons of people that are following me on Twitter that probably didn't see that article. And I'm not just saying like, hey, here's an article. And there are tons of people that are like their whole Twitter feed is just like them trying to curate news. And it's just like, here's an article, here's an article. <laughs> it's like, oh, but what did you think you know? about it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, another that just got po posted in my private Slack group that is from 38 North Solutions where Catherine Hamilton yeah, is. Yeah. It says, what is the Inflation Reduction Reduction Act of 2022? We summarize, right? Like I'll probably would, I'll probably retweet, retweet that or I'll tweet that, not retweet it. Probably tweet that because- very selfishly, like I could find a hundred articles on the IRA, but this one is by someone that I want as a guest on the show, right? Like, yes, that's Machiavellian and it's part of a, a network of that's networking. adding value, Yeah, right? Yep. It's, it's, just, it's just adding value. It's like, I choose to share Catherine Hamilton's post uh, because it is, uh, because Strategic. I know that I can trust her. Yeah. I know that I can trust her information. I actually don't need to read every letter of the article to know that it is trustworthy. It's strategic because I want Catherine on the show and I want her to see, I want to build that, um, that social equity with her, mm -hmm. right? Back to the point, you got to be thinking constantly from a content perspective, how do I want to engage on Twitter, right? As somebody who is sharing thoughtful things and you got to do it four or five times a day, not once a day, people won't like it because it gets lost. It's like the CNN ticker. Yeah. Right? At that point, I you almost have, wonder if it's better not to have a Twitter account. I mean, I think about 60 Hertz own efforts with Twitter and it's just, mm. I mean, bless Tanya for posting. Yeah. But it's just kind of like, well, we're checking a box. And at that point, it may almost be better not to do so it. So here's why you, here's why you absolutely have to have a Twitter account, whether you use it or not. Because when I invite you on the podcast, mm. when Mike Casey invites you on the cleans, the scaling clean podcast, we want to tag you on LinkedIn yeah, and Twitter and anywhere else. And if you don't have an account, we can't tag you. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's annoying. And when people get tagged, they come to your, your feed and the bare minimum, you've got your business URL there, mm -hmm. right? So they can find got, it. It's a, yeah. It is a defined container for pointing people to the right direction to find out more information about you if that's all they wanted, right? Yeah. yeah. So you have to have that. Then part B, all of your prospects are on LinkedIn. All of them. <laughs> I would argue today, if the person you're trying to reach is not on LinkedIn. You should be as a startup with, um, with VC funding. If you can't find them on LinkedIn and with one phone call to your investors, can't get in touch with them, they are not your client. That's a great, wow. That's a good heuristic in terms yeah. of how active they are, how professional. You're wasting your time. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. too small. You're wasting your time. They're not the golden goose. They are not a needle in the haystack. If they are really going to be your client as a startup, you have to be able to find them and Anybody who wants to be found is on LinkedIn. Anybody who doesn't want to be found is accessible through your immediate investor or close advisor network yeah, yeah. or not at all. And you should like, and literally don't waste your time anywhere else. People go to me, they're like, how do you get these people? I'm like, cause I get introduced to them. It's like, I don't like spend time inside of like, I can tell you one in a hundred guests. I spend time sending LinkedIn in mail messages, mm -hmm. right? Like just cold outreach saying, please, will you be on my show? I'd really like to interview you. Like, Laura Bean, if you're listening to this, you know, I want to interview you. I love the work that you did. Here's my at, love letter. At, at, yeah. At all your previous companies and more importantly now at Vestas, right? Like uh, I want to interview Laura Bean, but I don't spend all day trying to like reach out to Laura. I've sent her like two in mails in two or three years. And that for me, like being a guest on the show is a huge part of my business pipeline, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Do you see, like, I believe that not a single word is ever wasted. It's what we do with the information that matters. Hmm. And as such, at a metaphysical level, like I try to not ever regret the time I've invested in conversations, in the way I've spent the day. Um, even if I've decided to just like totally take a, a 
personal health day, right? Like, yeah. which is good. But like, if I've just decided to, to like doom scroll Instagram, there's something, it's, it's a symbol. It's a signal for me. It's like, okay, something's going wrong. Mm-hmm. Like I got to fix this. And Regroup. I sh- yeah. 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 Show myself kindness <laughs> and, and figure out like how to, how to actually create those boundaries. Well, those it is rails. metaphysical. I mean, Nico, I couldn't mm-hmm. agree more with that because so often, lest we believe our own thinking hmm. in every conclusion that we're drawing, um, you know, it is the, I had that myself yesterday. In fact, where I was, you know, we had like a crappy sales call with this guy that just wasn't listening and, hmm. you know, got some bad news on something else. And then maybe I just needed another coffee and it was like a rough day. And, you know, three fourths of the way through, I was concluding that it had been a bad day and then hmm. was worried about 60 Hertz and, you know, all of this stuff. And, and had yeah. a loving prompt for gratitude. And that did help, but I couldn't quite get myself there. And we've all been there. Like, sometimes you just mm-hmm. don't feel like you yep. even know what you can be grateful for. However, I had to do, I do my monthly investor uh, report and send out the highs and the lows and let everyone know. And yeah. for Pete's sakes, there were enormous things to be grateful for. There was a ton of stuff to be, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to just recognize that reality on. And, um, and yet, even if there hadn't been, I think that's, it, it, it's all an inside job. It's all an inside yeah. job of what's happening in consciousness. And, totally. you know, we've had some, some wonderful exchanges on that before too, or, or felt that deeper level. And I'm mm-hmm. grateful because I really believe that's in business so much more of what we need to reframe around what we're accomplishing or else it is too short a cycle and the highs and lows are too, frankly, meaningless to Mm -hmm. exactly understand what it is that we're all setting out to accomplish right here. But returning back to it being an inside job and understanding where our consciousness is, is much more important. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. You know, I, I love people. I just, I really love people. I, I, I know that you're the same. And the downside of that or where I've needed to give myself some coaching is related to the hiring process. Mm. We have had CTOs like a string of bad boyfriends uh, at 60 Hertz. We have really struggled to, to find the right individuals. I am so delighted to tell you that our CTO now is, I would just lay across the street for, like, we finally found our guy. So we've learned a lot of lessons in the hiring. I think we hired too many people initially. 
And interestingly, I spent the first five years absolutely allergic to hiring friends or family. A few Mm. names came forward and a few people came up and I just thought, no, 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 because if it doesn't go well, there goes the friendship and I'm sure as shit don't want to hire a family member. Um, But given the labor turnover that I think many of us are experiencing right now post pandemic, given the enormously competitive tech salaries that on some level I actually find quite gross. We are taking a different tactic. We just hired one of my co-founders, longtime dearest friends. And oh my gosh, I'm so glad that Chris is with us. So there is some anecdotal evidence, maybe even some studies that are showing in today's labor market, having the grease, if not the stickiness of hiring a friend may be important. Um, So I'm kind of curious to explore this. I mentioned that Cindy who came on as a trusted advisor and friend to help us sort of think about what operations should look like for the business that we're building. Her job is also sort of make it easy to hire an operations manager, show me where I'm weak and where we need help. And the person that I mentioned earlier in our conversation, Graham, who is now our operations manager is a, I'll say long time, not like the long time the way I've known Scott, but long time friend and neighbor. He lived across the street from us and he ended up moving away to San Antonio. He and his now wife, uh, then girlfriend, when we moved in, greeted us at our front steps to say welcome to the neighborhood. And I watched him learn to code. And now he codes for us, which is amazing. Uh, Wow. I love that story. And and you saw who he was. He literally showed up as who he was. That was a phenomenal reference point. The reason he's working for us is because they came into town. He reached out and said, you said that I always have a room in your house. Well, we're coming into town. Can we stay with you guys one night? And no kidding. He and I didn't go to sleep until 3 (laughs) a.m. Talking, not talking about energy, but talking about Web3 and like just geeking out on the an an obscure sort of tangential borderline unhealthy interest that he and I had on like the (laughs) underpinning, like the way that Web3 is developing and like how these communities are building. And ultimately what it became was a conversation around how to build community, mm. which is something that we're very interested in mm. and, and serious about trying to do mm. through the lens of, and the, and the megaphone of Suncast. But it did come back to, I mean, I've been really aseptic as well to hiring someone that worked, uh, that, that I'm friends with because every entrepreneur says, don't hire friends and don't hire family, you'll regret it. And um, I've hired friends and regretted it. And I was like, oh, I just love this guy. Like, I really love him. I don't want to see my, my own failings as an entrepreneur get in the way of our friendship. Because if we're honest, like, it's not about hiring friends and family that makes it hard. It's not as though they're somehow like magically unreliable. It is that now they have to, we as entrepreneurs come face to face with who we, <laughs> who we are in the workplace that's different from who we are having a beer with someone on a Friday night yeah. when we're not talking about work and they get to see that we're not disciplined. They get to see that we're not, if these things are true yeah. as they have been for me, yeah. that you're a procrastinator and they get to see that um, like all the things that you kind of try to hide behind the shroud of like, I've got this company, man, I hadn't thought about it that way, paper. I'm really glad that we had this discussion because in the current workforce, not only is it gross what people expect to be paid because of how the tech bubble has has reconditioned folks, but also at, at such a at, at really young age with very little experience. You know, I'm grateful for having built a reputation and for him having built a reputation together. For me to say to him both when he said, what do you want to be compensated? Me to say, I don't, I can't afford that. 
and him be open to a conversation around how as a startup we could get to it and how we could yeah. meet in the middle and and find a way a way forward and that's hard to do with a stranger. Well okay yes and I think it calls on us to really hone our ability to use our words. You know, if you have children, of course, we're used to saying that, but I say it to my mm-hmm. husband a lot too, because sometimes our intention is to, or our, our impulse is to avoid a social situation or avoid yeah. exactly this mm-hmm. dynamic because we don't have the right sample script or we fear that we wouldn't know how to say what need to be said. Yeah. And, um, and that's where I'm really pushing myself, you know, personally and professionally Every conversation can be had. We don't need to fear conflict. We don't need to fear the hard topics. There's art in that. There is this such power. This conversation is so healing for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. Uh, yeah. I've, and um, because I, I, we all, like, we fear conflict. Yeah. We fear being found out, right? I think that's the thing. Mm-hmm. We fear being exposed in some way for something that we maybe have tried to not be, for something maybe that we are, that we think maybe perhaps isn't what we think people expect of us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's all these expectations, like who you think your investors might expect of you, mm. right? Yeah. And they, yeah. that they expect of you to update them once a month is an entirely self-imposed thing. And I have very similar self-imposed things. Like I doubt that more than a hundred, and that's on like the very high side of my listeners would ever notice if I went three weeks out publishing the episode. Totally. Right. Yeah. Oh, can, I, can I tell you a funny story about just exactly to your point? Uh, I, I sent out my investor reportedly last month. I pushed the wrong button and sent the same one I'd sent the prior month. And um, and then like I knew it was going to take me another 24 to 40 hours to get the correct to get it corrected. But meanwhile, five investors chimed in and said, looks great. Wonderful progress. You know, <laughs> it was the same flipping report. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Oh, oh my gosh. If you're out there struggling with these kinds of things, just we, this is just a reminder to, as entrepreneurs, we need to not take ourselves so seriously, but we, de- we definitely have to be disciplined mm-hmm. and we have to be structured in a more productive way. Like there are meaningful lessons. I, I love this. I mean, I've literally in this call, I started a document called What I Have Learned Starting Suncast. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. Yeah, One of these days. I, I mean, I can, I can read what I've written already, but um, but then you think I was listening to you. I was, I was actually like kind of kind of copying some of your some of your ideas because they resonate with me so much. But it also it also forms for me. Eventually, I'll write a book, and I'm, I'm actually having talked to you. I know that that's something that's got to be in your pathway because you are on your path because you have such cogent thoughts and you're articulate and you're able to communicate in a way that helps other people think about problems. You've created a business that helps people organize their, their information. Tell me a bit about, about what it is that you are doing differently in the world. Now you arrived in Alaska and you started working with this nonprofit. And as I recall, you started just getting frustrated with kind of the, the, the lack of education, lack of knowledge, lack of data supporting this concept called microgrid. I will forever be grateful to Chris Rose for hiring me at Renewable Energy Alaska Project. It was just a, a phenomenal way to land in a new community. Moving as a grown-up is really hard. You know, when we arrived a new place in our 20s, everybody wants to go out and everybody wants to have new friends. But when you're 35, 36, 37, that's a different, that's a different story. And all I knew, I only knew my husband. And so my role at REAP was a membership director. I was deputy director, but that fundamentally meant membership. And so I got to know everybody. 
It was my job to know mm. everybody in the state. And that exposed me to a lot of new ideas, even though I've worked in you know, renewables throughout the career, but it was a whole new vantage on this. As some may know, Alaska has 13% of the world's microgrids. The Arctic is fundamentally powered by microgrids, little tiny diesel powerhouses increasingly with batteries and wind and solar. Um, but there are more than 200 in Alaska. And most importantly, um, the state has the longest operating experience with microgrids. There is a know-how, there is a vantage on engineering, there is operational efficiency that people like the World Bank and lots of international development organizations are coming to Alaska to discover. I was at a conference last week and we had a great delegation um, from, from Fiji and surrounding islands that were here to wow. talk about isolated power systems too. And yeah. so it's not often that we look to sub-Saharan Africa or remote corners of the Arctic to lead us in new directions, but I think particularly as microgrids are becoming more of a resiliency building block across the lower 48, then we're going to see more and more of this. What are we doing differently? Um, when I realized I was ready to leave REAP and start 60 Hertz, it was, again, to be a solution. I wanted to try to get things done in a different way. And I didn't leave to start a tech company. I um, am not a technologist and happy to say that because I think many of the users that 60 Hertz now serves um, are themselves, not ones that are seeking an app or that are seeking um, a technology solution. But when we talk about field work, we talk about maintenance, we talk about maintaining solar assets and microgrids and batteries and wind and you name it, um, mm. that that is fundamentally a human task. And so that's what we're doing different. We're really focused on how we help people achieve their full potential, demonstrate the capacity they're bringing, be empowered by data to make better decisions, whether they are in the field or the supervisor sitting at the desk. And so yeah. that, that's what's been important to us with 60 Hertz. One of the things that I love about learning a lot about the work that you did back in Colorado, the work that you're doing in Alaska is, is how you have started thinking about how to, to serve clients and build a product around serving clients. A lot of the sort of groundwork for 60 Hertz was sort of the learning that came to you through interacting with the wonderful community of, of uh, microgrids in Alaska. Something that surprised me is that your product was built effectively as an off-grid product. Like you don't think about mm. monitoring or maintenance or a service product in today's environment that doesn't that doesn't need to in some way be connected to the grid. Can you help put sort of containerize for me what the 60 Hertz product is? And I'd like you to start with the name because that has something to do with it, but how what you've created is intended to be used and maybe even some creative ways that it has become mm -hmm. used. Sure. So, um, you know, 60 Hertz is the frequency at which electricity is distributed, at least in many parts of, of the world. We also distribute electricity at 50 Hertz. When I first named the company, I think an early investor said, well, what are you going to do about all the places that don't, you know, that run 50 Hertz? And I thought, oh, we'd be lucky to have that problem. And then, you know, within <laughs> six months, here we were all across Africa and, and uh, you know, we're, we're global. Yeah. I think we're operational in 10 countries today. And so the use case that we first designed with, I, I don't, I don't think I've told you this story yet, but um, in 2018, I had just delivered Binget and um, in 2018, Binget is my daughter. Yep. Um, we had, a, a, we wanted to do a pilot. I had a, won a $10,000 prize and that's what we used to develop the first iteration of the software and went in the field with 30 Alaska native 
they are Native American, Alaska Native uh, microgrid operators in 15 communities, mm-hmm. gave them the software for free and said, we're having a contest. Whoever does the most number of maintenance logs on this mobile app, documenting the maintenance, your daily maintenance of your diesel generators or any renewable inputs, um, you're going to win a sweatshirt. And then, by the way, please give us your feedback. Like, how do we make this better? This was on the heels of having done a lot of human-centered design in the field and and, and watching Whitney Gant, one of our co-founders, who was the former head of Global Mobile for the Grameen Foundation, um, led that work. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot. And there was tremendous participation and we got great feedback. And everyone that participated in that pilot, the utility companies for whom they worked, said that they would pay for the software. So with that wind in our sales, we were able to gain the first round of venture and ultimately develop the product. Importantly, as I would hope would be obvious to to most people listening, Alaska is not covered with 5G or even 2G. And so we designed for the most extreme use case when it comes to bandwidth and connectivity and being an offline first app, a native mobile app um, to allow operators to submit their work, to follow instructions, to follow troubleshooting guide. That proved to be a lot harder than we understood it would be, but we're, we're there and is one of the differentiators in our product that it does work offline. I heard a fun story of some unintended but useful use cases for your product to sort of help folks also think outside of just microgrids or renewables. How else is it being used? <laughs> Where to even start? We got a grant at one point during COVID, kind of an emergency bailout um, to create a ventilator maintenance product that was actually never deployed, but we're still ready. It it helped us bring the product to clinics and healthcare um, in emerging markets because, frankly, the same person who is um, looking after maternal health in a rural clinic may be looking after the diesel gen set or solar battery pack out the back door. And the app is really interested in maintenance for lay people, how we help everyone look after their assets. We have a new contract now with the entity that services conveyor belts across Mexico for DHL, Amazon, and FedEx. Again, a use case we never would have predicted, but boy, we love we love that that team. You know, and now we're uh, being asked to look after water treatment plants too, um, uh, to help look after the maintenance in, in those settings. To, to, to be clear, it's a software. We don't have boots on the ground, but it's it's a software that's flexible. Where do you find most folks get confused or ask the most questions when they're trying to figure out what your company mm-hmm. is and how do you overcome that as fa- essentially founder and chief sales officer as, as many of us are? Yeah, yeah, right. Like we're going to make our first hundred sales. I, I think that's that's the <laughs> that's case. Right. And I love it. I love, you know, I love sales. I think it's so fun to hear people's stories and see what they need. In English, I believe we all say operations and maintenance in the same breath. Yeah. And for many people, that also means monitoring. Mm-hmm. They are actually distinct offices. They are distinct departments. They are distinct disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so we most frequently clarify that we're not a monitoring software. We partner with a monitoring software. We can be helpful to take action on alarms or alerts that come up. But 60 Hertz governs the human activities, the field work, the corrective action, um, preventative maintenance looks at documenting what the human is seeing that could be causing a problem or demonstrating that there is no problem with with a host of, of assets. We love human-centered design and have invested a lot of time following people in the field and um, had a chance to go uh, to follow a, a, a colleague of ours who was working for Blue Planet Energy mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico and um, uh, on a Red Cross deployment yeah. there. So Kyle and I, uh, Kyle Bolger, Kyle. Uh, one of our, yeah, love Kyle, like uh, just... 
we were bumping along in this Jeep and he had, uh, I think the guy's name was Jose, was in the backseat with me. And this dear soul had like seven tabs open on his laptop, even as we drove, because his job was to be the monitor, the human monitor, the human network operations center for all of the different hardware that they had deployed in the field to be discerning and reading alerts. So many people in our discovery, many people have that guy who is sitting looking at seven to eight to 10 tabs yeah. open on a browser, trying to like ferret out the reports so and true. the alerts that makes sense. Uh, and so that's where, that's really where 60 Hertz is today is to have the telemetry system that, 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 that feeds into an observation pipeline so that we can help an ops manager determine what needs to become a work order, what's an issue that needs to be resolved quickly, and then dispatch the right staff to do so. I love that you have focused on the human-centered aspect of it because specifically it's an area that's neglected in an effort to just capture all of the data in a monitoring scenario, right? Is like, okay, well, who's going to do what with this data? I'd say most monitoring platforms really do focus on like, how do we capture the data? How do we uh, interpret it and create alerts around it? And and it's not that they're uh, forgetting the human, but what I hear you saying is that you are sort of human centered in, in the design process. If I have no experience with human-centered design at all, what's a good sort of mainstream example that would resonate for me? You know, the the human-centered design activities that we've worked with, so HCD is how you evolve a product. This can apply to tennis shoes. It can apply to software. It can apply to the microphones and headsets Mm -hmm. that you and I both have right now. And it's a line of inquiry that interviews people, that asks what they had for breakfast, that asks what the worst part of their job is, asks the last time they felt acknowledged, asks what they, if they had a magic wand, what would they do? A funny thing about product design is that if I said, Nico, how would you make your microphone better? You would like start solutioning and coming up with a couple of different ideas. And they may not actually be great solutions. The way we each solution, what works for me, what works for you might be really different. And so a gifted product designer distills that feedback, distills the broader horizon, that landscape in which we are using the product and then derives a solution that reflects a solution to whatever whatever has just come to light through the interview. Mm. One of my favorite stories, we didn't know what we were doing initially. So we hired a human-centered designer who had done extensive work with us and we chartered a small airplane and flew above the Arctic Circle to visit a community called Venatai in Alaska, where one of our operators were. And um, it was actually, the flight was so bumpy that Hannah threw up in her purse. And um, I mean, it was like, you know, we were really out there, landed on a lake. Uh, I was still nursing Binget. She and my husband came with us and we sat down with this gentleman for three hours in, um, in his living room and asked a lot of questions about his job as a power plant operator, microgrid operator and recorded the content and, you know, interviewed his sub operator. And it was, um, it was one of my richest memories in starting 60 Hertz for two reasons. First, I had ideas about what I thought the product would or could do. One of them was I had a massive bias. I had seen a lot of Alaska Native people playing bingo. And so I was like, well, bingo, we can include bingo as part of an incentive in the app. Like who doesn't like bingo? I like bingo. I've been to bingo parlor. Well, so I say to Tim Thuma, um, but now what about bingo? Do you play bingo very often? And he snorted and said, no, that's just for old ladies. Wow. So, so like, great. That was, you know, disabused me immediately of, uh, of that thought. But the more important piece was I wanted the software at that time to touch on deeply human aspects of what we have to bring to work sometimes. 
which is to say, if there is a trauma in our experience, if we are dealing with an environment that statistically has a higher rate of trauma, how do you get your job done if you are living with a family member who is um, chronically intoxicated, who is in and out of jail? Like, how does that impact? And I'm a disciple of the adverse childhood experiences thesis. I think that if more of us understood how ACEs impact our ability to perform our work, that we would have public policy solutions that are far more effective. Um, And so I thought this was the right time to bring up gently some of these questions in this human-centered design interview. Mm -hmm. And, And it wasn't. It wasn't. I was wrong. And he basically said that emotions are for pussies and we don't do that here. Cultural difference. Cultural difference, uh, generational difference, perhaps like there were there were a lot of things, but I, I, um, you know, as woke as we all are and as, again, triggering a word as that is for some people, um, I think I think we are evolving. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Nico. (laughs) I just turned red, but it was was good timing. I couldn't resist. Oh my God. Um, Keep going. As well as, as I think as well as we all want to be, not all of us are, not all, certainly not all of my users are and don't want to be. And, um, it, you know, I think there, I think there's really, there's a role and a place and a time. Mm. And so that's another great reason why human centered design wow. can, can really help evolve a solution that is a better fit for today, for this generation yeah. and what we're bringing forward. Also, one thing that I heard there, and I'm making a note for my team is it sounds like a good human centered design interviewer is a good podcast interviewer. So yeah, yeah, I can, Hannah is one. I would love for you to introduce me to all of the HCDs that, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cause I love meeting them. I find that that it's hard to find folks that are genuinely curious enough to unapologetically ask questions, but be kind and empathetic and understand that you might not get answers. Right. I find far too many people ask questions that they expect answers for rather than asking questions to see where the conversation goes. And I think the latter is very useful case in point. Mm. I mm-hmm. asked you to tell me more about human-centered design and you told me a fantastic story that I never would have heard. Mm. And it goes back at the beginning of the conversation. I said, you know, some of this touchy-feely like background of where we came from stuff is hard to edit out, but it gets us to that vulnerable place where we do remember stories that actually have meaning. And, uh, and it's why my interviews tend to go longer and why our, our true, our true fans stick through them all because there are gems like that throughout these uh, conversations. And I'm grateful for the ones that have already um, sort of come up in this conversation. How did you go about developing your founding team? Nico, that's such a, I don't know. Obviously I'm blushing and smiling and loving that question Mm -hmm. because it was, um, we are not the traditional tech company. Mm -hmm. We're not a bunch of bros. It's all women. So a couple, a couple points. Um, I knew that I wanted to start this thing. And at this time, a very longtime friend, like the sister in my life, had just left her role at Grameen Foundation, where she had been developing tech solutions for agriculture and emerging markets and was accustomed to working in across 15 time zones. And so Whitney Gant had just left that work and it was good timing for her to be a thought partner and to dive in and to really investigate together how 60 Hertz could come forward. If you're unfamiliar with Grameen Foundation, look up Grameen Bank and recognize that this is not just some random job she was leaving. So we we won't go down that rabbit hole, but wow. 
she was leaving Grameen. And you, she was leaving Grameen. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for the context for, for listeners Total. who may not be as familiar, but yeah, yeah. my gosh. So, so Whitney is a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. At that time, I was new to Alaska, right? Like I'd only been there two years and I was concerned about a talent vacuum. I was wondering who I was going to find. I didn't know who else I could reach out to, even in my larger Colorado community. This thing seemed like kind of a wild hair and a risk anyway. Um, And so... um, but as you know, by talking to me, I do a lot with intuition. I, I really do trust the grace of the universe to place exactly in our hands what we need when we need mm-hmm. it. And um, this experience has been nothing but that. So that, that was in March of 2017, March, April of 2017, that, that things kicked off with 60 Hertz. That summer... I went to a barbecue alone. My husband was supposed to go with me to with one of his friends. And of course he got called away on assignment. And so here I was with like a fruit salad, trying to meet all these new friends in my thirties. And of all good graces, there was another couple that had just moved to Alaska as well. Um, and Laura was, Laura Wilson um, is a diesel engineer on hmm. large maritime vessels. There are like two women in the world that have this job. And um, she happened to be standing on the porch at this barbecue and was two weeks into Alaska. And so Laura was a tremendous thought partner as at that time, 60 Hertz had to be really focused on diesel because that's the backbone of most microgrids, particularly in the Arctic. So, you know, she, she was with us for several months, was really instrumental contributed a ton of the of hmm. the of the content that we needed similarly around this time um had had met Tanya James and that was again an experience where my neck got hot and i just felt really like i knew something powerful was with this was with this colleague that i'd met and the short story the headline is Tanya ultimately has gone on to become my my true co-founder she is Alaska native she is the 17th generation in her family to serve in the armed forces she saw combat in Afghanistan. She used to be a police officer. She loves renewable energy because the Alaska Native community that her family um, is from has paid 40 cents a kilowatt hour since the beginning. I just, I mean, Tanya is is a gift. I can't imagine what this company would be like without Tanya James. And it's been it's been such an honor to like grow up together in the startup space with her. And so she came aboard about, you know, in 20, uh, 2017, 2018, working part-time until we could afford to, to really hire her. And now she's just my right-hand woman. And um, also not a technical founder, you know, like neither of us knew very much about software, but she... Um, she has become our head of product because she's gotten so good at this and understands a lot today. What do you think Tanya would say was the important skill to learn as a non-technical founder to be able to build a successful software product? Wow. She came by it honestly because the first several iterations of the product were really bad. They didn't work very well. And Tanya had Mm -hmm. to be the face of failure to our customers in helping troubleshoot and solve issues. She configured all of these early customers. Mm -hmm. She was inside as I was outside facing in sales and investor facing and managing some of that, uh, the the division of labor became Mm -hmm. that she had to really solve it. So by hearing the complaints of customers, by understanding how the product really should have worked better than it did and being the one to solve it, she came to those skills on her own. She would say, I think she would say that to be good at software, you have to be a systems thinker because it's impossible to imagine the edge case of what's the outlying use case 
that you have not designed for, but that surprisingly 20% of your customer base will now suddenly need. So she's been good at that kind of foresight. And she's been, she's also an excellent listener and really does retain what people are saying to her. We've mentioned a couple of times investors. Can you share a little about the decision to go and raise money, how you knew that was the thing you needed to do and the, the process, maybe where you're at now, uh, as much as you are willing to share in terms of how much you've raised, uh, how you thought about it being, you know, basically based in, based in Alaska and working in a, um, in, a, I'll call it a, a neat, a niche of the industry that is a mix of hard tech and software. Can you talk a bit about that fundraising decision and process? Yeah, Nico. So just to position 60 Hertz, I've raised just over 3 million to date. We're squarely um, pre-A. The plan is for Series A next year. And, you know, I think for listeners that are familiar with raising venture capital, particularly female and minority founders, the ability for venture capitalists to to be willing to place money in you is statistically quite um, impossible. In fact, I think uh, the 2021 numbers from Crunchbase show that uh, only um, 2.6% of venture went to a single female founder. Wow. And it's, it's, it's alarming. And I, um, I don't, the, the, the I, and yet I relate to it. Um, when you think about parting with something that for many people is more important, sadly, than their families, than a lot of other, they, your money, yeah. like getting rid of your money or investing it is a very emotional decision for many people. Now you've got investors where that's simply a job as well, but yeah. how do we make bets? And I think the unconscious bias, looking at a woman, um, uh, who, especially one who's declared, self-declared as, as non-technical, that could be a barrier. Nonetheless, I've been so grateful for the incredibly open-minded and supportive and obviously alert investors that have made the decision to place capital with us. I frankly didn't comprehend that there was a route besides venture because that's what I had known. Um, starting Amatis, helping start Amatis Controls in Aspen, the CEO there had the classic Aspen experience where someone else slid, you know, like a $2 million check across the dinner table and was like, go for it, build this um, IoT company. And so I actually went out to market with a pitch deck right off the, right out of the gates in 2017 and was going to raise a million dollars on a pitch deck, which we do see plenty of people doing. Yeah. I think there's a lot of hubris behind that. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy if you're a white boy to raise that kind of money with that kind of vision. And I, I don't mean to say that with such um, askance, yeah. but statistically that just is a lot of what we see. Yeah. And so the path for us has been, I would still do venture. Mm -hmm. I think having um, your ideas vetted by others, having to defend your idea is incredible. And for a product like software that is expensive to build up front until you hit scale, I just don't see how most people um, would have the, the capital to do it. I mean, we're easily 2 million into our, um, into, our, into our CapEx to develop this product today. That said, if those, if you can bootstrap it and raise as you do, then great. And I would certainly invest in a second time founder the next way through because so much of what you're paying for is learning curve. I think that we talked a bit about sort of the difficult process of hiring and um, that being an obvious headache. Another, another obvious headache for, and especially for venture funded companies, because you do need to not only find users, but find, uh, find customers. And they're not always the same is you have to get your name out there. Um, listeners of Suncast can readily acknowledge and identify ways that you've done that because you've partnered here with Suncast in this year. But I'm curious, as a founder, you've got a lot on your plate, but you also are chief 
sales or chief revenue officer. How do you think about the concept of thought leadership and marketing yourself and the product? I'm curious how you have framed that and what you've experimented with and what you've seen work. For a company at our stage, you know, 60 Hertz has 20 employees. Um, we're, we're scattered globally. Um, we're hearing lots of stories. I'm placing myself in a position so that I can be right in touch with customers, mm-hmm. right in touch with VCs to see the trends that they're observing in the market so that there is the thought leadership to be had. Um, I, I read as much as I can. And I think that's also very renewing and important so that we're not just tethered to the project management software and solving solving the day to day. For me, going to conferences, being out and about it has been um, just the, the the milk of what's been so mm-hmm. essential to gain those early customers and the authenticity of doing what it takes to 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 get them. Um, we've made some really bad deals. Uh, we have, um, don't tell anybody, we have a large power set of power plants in Australia and oh my gosh, they are not paying enough for their product. And mm. um, we're, but we needed that early reference customer and yeah. we're figuring out now how to, how to inch them up. Your secret's safe with me and 3000, my friend. <laughs> I know exactly. Everyone who's listening, <laughs> you, all of you, please tell Ben to, to pay more per month. <laughs> um, but the, the, you know, and I guess I think, you know, something I just love about startup culture is that it's like you have chances for conversations like this, which feel really good and are so endorsing. And Nico, thank you so much for providing a platform for all this hard work to like get acknowledgement because it is so unglamorous otherwise. And I don't know what's making me think of this, but um, I had a conference. I was attending a conference in Denver earlier this year and was so excited to get home to Nathaniel and Binga and was standing at DIA to like take the direct flight to Anchorage. And number one, I am not a very prompt person. So really working on this. But number two, I also never on social media, like I really don't post, but was standing at the gate waiting for a few minutes and posted about, you know, on Instagram, how excited I was to go see them, looked up and saw that the United agent had closed the flight. And I was like, I'm here, I'm here. And he's, and he could have cared. He could have cared less. Wouldn't open the gate. Wouldn't like, that was it. I just like toasted my own opportunity to get home that night. And (sighs) through a series of rebooks and uh, a a variety of things, I didn't even have my luggage. Like it was all, it was such a loss and made it as far as Seattle that night. And then at one in the morning, ended up wrapping myself up in the 60 Hertz tablecloth. I had my conference kit bag that had like peppermint patties and some fake flowers in it and the 60 hertz tablecloth and just slept on the floor of the Seattle airport um, before catching finally a flight home the next day. But it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's so unglamorous um, getting the company off the ground at this stage. And yet the reward of having, having customers find value in our product of, of, you know, hearing conversations about how it's working for them is just, um, it makes it worth it. I'll never challenge you to post on, uh, on Instagram again. (laughs) I don't know that you have thought uh, at length about this unless you poured over the the, the interview prep questions that I sent you, but I I do believe that you have a lot of stories in you and you're a great communicator. Uh, What would, if you were given the opportunity, what would your TED talk be about? What would my TED talk be about? Um, Something I'm really, really concerned about and passionate about is bipartisanship. Where we are today, what's what I've seen as someone who cares about policy and about how policy can protect those least 
capable among us about how policy is how we unite and move people to accomplish goals that otherwise would be impossible. Um, I am I am gravely concerned about the um, hyper political environment that we find ourselves in in the United States today, and not just the U.S. In no small part because of tech, in no small part because of big tech. Um, that's a told story, of course. But, you know, something I, I am really proud of on our team is that we have a very bipartisan team. Um, we are serving a market that is not full of greeny progressives. People come to maintenance, sometimes from a different background. And I think we need to studiously, passionately, uh, with all our hearts, be thinking more and more about how we build bridges, how we unite, how we stop vilifying even people that may deserve it. <laughs> um, uh, but but that we, um, you know, I think we are all staring down the barrel of a failed democratic system in the United States in the next two years, where I believe this will absolutely come to pass, that we may not see a peaceful transition of power. At the same time, I believe that the clean energy sector, I believe that maintenance jobs within the clean energy sector pose a huge key to bringing forward solutions economically that benefit people regardless of, of um, what news channel they're listening to. And so I am... I am interested in and passionate about how we can do more um, to unite people within our sector as opposed to having it be a carrying card or a dog whistle about where we're all standing. I'm often unsure if I want to ask that question or where it's going to take us. But in this case, it's one of those where I could I could unpack several pieces of it and just stay here with you for another half hour. But but we don't have the luxury (laughs) of time for that. Um, I would like to know. Um, can I come come back for a second to the the fundraising and uh, and a bit moving into what I call a, a segment called lessons learned? Mm. Are there particular lessons that, and I'm going to say, as a female founder, you would pass along that were the school of hard knocks for you that you could sort of send the elevator back down on uh, on the process of fundraising as a female founder? Mm. For sure, for sure. What I feel I have learned is as much about management, as much about board relations, um, and as much about being a leader. Um, If I could talk to the Piper of 2017, I would give advice that I'm still not doing a good job at following, but I think it genuinely would have served me better not to be so nice, not to be so nice. I don't think that's a gendered comment. But I think that the human part of me, the humanist that loves to to respond with all my heart to my coworkers and to my employees and to our, our um, my board directors, that sometimes may be at the expense of the domain authority that I have mm. or of the vision that I have. And because I'm collaborative and because I want to hear what everybody has to say, I wish at times that I was uh, firmer mm. about stating what I do believe is true and needs to happen. So sometimes being nice gets in the way of that. And that doesn't, the opposite of nice is not aggressive. The opposite of nice is not mean. Right. The opposite of nice in my book where I'm standing today is confident and firm. Mm. And that's, um, that's something I'm really striving for, I believe. And then in terms of other, other lessons, I, um, one of my board directors actually, um, took me aside and I was grateful. This is kind of a, maybe second, second verse of the same song, but Mm -hmm. he said, um, Piper, we've invested in you. We made the choice. We made the choice. We bet, we bet our money on you and Mm -hmm. we don't need to be consulted quite so much about the direction that we're going, about how things are working. We invested in you. Tell me what you think we should do. 
And that was freeing because I felt a good leader and a good CEO would be collaborative. And mm -hmm. I still do, but it isn't collaborative without, um, without a vision. And I had the vision even then, but was perhaps, um, I don't know, being too deferential in stating it. Yeah. Well, I like that. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I don't think those are gendered comments. I think that can be true for any of us yeah. as we're starting. That's um, right. I totally, I'm thinking of a couple of, of clients right now who, who, who might need to hear that and who constantly are feeling the pressure of uh, investors and advisors, but it's inside their head. It's the things we tell ourselves are important that maybe our stories where we're telling ourselves that others are, that our expectations others don't have about us or of us. Yeah. Right? And the expectations yeah. they do have of us actually suggest a, a whole lot more confidence in us than we give ourselves. Than we give ourselves a hundred percent. Yeah. 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 What do you feel like was the most instructive uh, dead end, a time where you really knew clearly you needed to stop digging or pivot and why? There have been so many. There have <laughs> been so many. Um, maybe it was, uh, uh, man, this, okay, okay. I'm going to be real vulnerable with you. Mm. A big part of what 60 Hertz was found on one of our major differentiators has been about lower literacy user interface. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean? When when I first started the company, an article had just come out in Wall Street Journal called The End of Typing. And this is pointing out that the proliferation of smartphones globally is bringing tech into the hands of people who may not have had the benefit of formal education. And, you know, 20% of Americans don't read at a fourth grade level. I don't know the extent to which these are people who are using our software today. Mm. We theorize that there is quite a percentage. And so we have invested heavily in understanding what helps someone who is new to technology, who is new to reading, who is new to their maintenance activity. How do we help them be more confident and successful from the standpoint of a digital assist or a mobile user interface? I think this is a place where we're going to have to be, we, we, we may just have to shelve it. Mm. Um, we're working on a beautiful user interface. We're working on a functional user interface. Yeah. We're bringing forward the lessons that we can. It's a place that I wanted to be a thought leader, um, but I don't know that we can right now. Um, and, and the reason why is as much because the emerging markets that we initially wanted to serve, you know, we have a lot of activity in sub-Saharan Africa or in remote parts, um, indigenous communities in the Arctic. Not to say that those people necessarily or by definition would need that design. That's not true. Yeah. Some of them, yes. But that where the market is today, where we are focused on solar activity in the lower 48, the caliber and training available to today's field technicians mm -hmm. at a utility scale solar site, it's it's not as much of a driver. Mm -hmm. So that's a pivot. That's that's one that's, that, that's been sad for mm -hmm. me to let go just in terms of our roadmap and what I want 60 Hertz to be known for. Um, but again, it's driven back to that question of what are people paying for and how else can we add value? Mm -hmm. um, so something we're weighing. In art, predominantly writing and music, you call that kill your darlings. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. That, you kill had, your darlings. Oh boy, that's... <laughs> and it's, and it, it comes from authors who have a hard time. They love uh, either a character too much or they love an idea or a chapter too much. Mm. Or musicians who love a hook or a, or a song uh, more than is merited, right? It's like, um, but you can't keep them all on the album and... You can't keep all the chapters in the book and you can't keep all the characters yeah. and you got to kill your yeah. dogs. That's yeah. That's so true. Hmm. I think that's hmm. a really important and powerful lesson for most entrepreneurs. <laughs> Cause you, yeah, I mean, we all sit around and ideate around how the business or the product can evolve. And there are almost an infinite number of, of, of 
features and benefits that you can iterate on, but you have to prioritize around where you're going to maximize your uh, return on the value of the minute or second or hour that you spend. And as I say in the beginning and always, time is our most valuable resource. It's the only uh, non-renewable resource we've got. I can't help but bring up, um, I studied poetry a yeah. lot in college and and um, ended up minoring in it. And uh-huh. they say the structure of a good poem, this has been, you know, of course, this is flexible for depending on what vantage you're coming at it mm-hmm. from. But what I really retained is that a poem is like a braid. A braid has three parts. Mm-hmm. A basic braid has three parts. And so the poet is balancing perhaps three concepts in the work in order to keep them all in the air, tie them back together. Even in this interview, I see ways that you're doing that. To that to hold the thought into a coherent thread does demand that braiding activity. And I think um, from a product standpoint too, I'm not sure I would be willing to winnow it to only three areas of focus or three features or whatnot, mm-hmm. but we have to be mindful of the threads and how you really can't hold too much more in your hands. I mean, I spent some time thinking about that because hmm. I kind of do think of, uh, in a typical interview, kind of about three at most three or four threads that I'm trying to weave through the narrative. Uh, One of those is how you think as a human about growth and personal development. And uh, I usually spend a fair amount of time at the end of the interview, sometimes more than others, asking questions about that. Uh, And we've got a ton of insight into how you think about life generally. And that's beautiful for me. I'd love to know if there are any particular authors or books that have left an impression on you and why. Well, I really do love to read or listen today, you know, uh, to our audiobooks. Yeah, yeah. You know, Daniel Pink's book, Drive, that Mm -hmm. was very influential for 60 Hertz and how we were identifying what would be an intrinsic motivator for people Mm -hmm. um, and how we could bring that forth in the app. Bernadette Jua has a book called Meaningful that I listened to three times and really found great value in from a product design. Bernadette Jua, I believe it's J-E-W-A. Okay. um, Meaningful. Mm. Really, really formative um, for me. You know, the book I am just obsessed with right now, and I'm declaring already the best book of 2022 that, that I'm reading is called Hunt, Gather, Parent. And even if you don't have kids, I think this book is phenomenal in terms of introspection on how you were probably raised, because many of us are of an era when, um, you know, the sense of discipline or control or how we... Uh, bring forward. So Hunt Gather Parent is um, by Michaeline Duclef. Mm-hmm. She's a PhD. And she, uh, upon suddenly waking up super frustrated with her three-year-old, began to ask herself questions about how other cultures were parenting and visits um, a Canadian Inuit culture wow. and the Maya in Mexico and um, a, a group in Africa. And rather than being a tale of the exotic or she's not romanticizing the exotic, but it's uh, actually pointing out ways what some psychologists have called the weird culture. Weird is Western um, educated, industrialized, rich democracies. This is North America. This is Europe. Something like 96% of the psychology that we have researched and understand and have enshrined in papers and academia Mm. only study weird cultures. And so what we think we know about how humans interact and behave is primarily born of looking at ourselves and frankly, as one small slice of the world. The vast majority of the world does not have this hyper-individualized, hyper-praised culture. And Instead, what's important and what I'm really taking out of this this book is how empowering it is to be part mm-hmm. of something. 
Um, I see this with our little one where when we tell Bingit about um, this is, you know, you need to be doing this or please be obedient or this is, this is what you should. It's far less effective than bringing her in in service of the family, that what she is helping to do is for our family, then she feels, she feels a part of something. She is always nested and embedded within something bigger that matters. And I, I really do think even from a company culture standpoint, what we do as a we, which really departs from so much of what company culture talks about and what every, you know, self-help algorithm is about, which is this I first, I, me, you know, anybody that's hiring a millennial right now, you certainly see that. Um, it's, it's, I, I think this is also what is creating um, the isolation, mental mm-hmm. health issues, um, partisanship, back to that. Um, I, I think we really, we are at the limits of what I as an yeah. individual can and should be doing. Yeah. Do you have a morning or evening routine that helps you show up for for work as well as for your family? I am obsessed with morning routines and Mm -hmm. I think it's the only silver bullet toward um, mental health and success. Um, So for me, it is getting up early and having quiet time to myself with books that I consider holy or inspirational. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of green tea. What time is getting up early? Um, I'm in a phase of my life right now. We are expecting another child. So thank you. Yeah. Um, getting up early is a lot. When you're growing a human, it turns out it's really hard to get up as early, but typically I like to get up at five 30 and have, have enough time. If I could get an hour every morning, I'd be thrilled. Usually it ends up being more like 10 to 15 to 20 minutes, but, um, having that really solid time to listen and, 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 not look at the phone. I can't emphasize that enough. Good God, do not lay in bed and look at the phone. Um, But I need to own my own consciousness in Mm -hmm. the morning and that that is establishing the harmony of the day. If possible, a little workout and um, and then naturally my mom duties and getting going with 60 Hertz. Little workout. I try to get that in. Uh, I fail more often than I like it. Me too. Me too. Uh, today I did get a, <laughs> I did get a, um, a 20 minute run. I said to my, I said like, I, I said to my wife, it's 920. No, it's 940. My team's call starts at 10. I'll be right back. And I just like, right sprinted for like 20 minutes. It was great. <laughs> um, Piper, I always enjoy our conversations. I know that if someone has listened this long, that they themselves are enjoying it and they are um, probably a little more than uh, casually interested in how they can connect with you more. Uh, what would you say to that person? Is there, are there ways that you like to be found? Well, yes, please would just love to, would love to connect with anybody that might want to carry on conversation or learn more about what we do at 60 Hertz or, or um, open to mentorship as well, or, or um, being a mentor or a mentee. I, I really believe in that, mm-hmm. that circularity. I'd love to know if you have an answer to this question. I, rare, I rarely ask and should every time. How can the Suncast audience help? You got an audience of, mm. if, if, if statistics are right, it's more than 3000 people that regularly listen to this show. Well, you know, I think uh, we all can be doing more for the renewable sector and solar specifically by creating pathways, job opportunities for people that are professional carers. That's the maintenance sector. Um, I find that to a person, our users are... Uh, deeply empathetic. They care a lot about others. They are the nurses of infrastructure. Mm. And I think we need to be doing more to to hallow and highlight these professions, to employ people, to do the maintenance, not to be looking for ways to automate around them, but to be making jobs. Gosh, I love that. I never heard anybody say it. And I think that you should 
popularized the nurses of infrastructure. <laughs> that just came out. I'll have to think about it. It is okay. good. If you haven't said that before, you got to use that. Well, let's end today, as we always do, with what we call a bold prediction. I'm curious, what do you believe is the next huge problem we got to solve in the clean energy sector? What's holding us back? What's in your crystal ball as we look out over the rest of 2022 and into 2023? Okay, I'm going to be super specific mm-hmm. and nerdy about this, sure. but I am worried about inverter warranties. We have a lot of companies that are not able to stand up long enough to survive the uh, warranty that they've offered. Um, We have a lot of uh, service companies that are chasing warranties longer than they need to. I think this could be the big black eye. We have plenty of data Mm -hmm. illustrating it. So you got SATCON and AE chief among them uh, in the big utility scale side. And you look no further than the old uh, Xantrex inverters and and PV powered, you know, like it's so many companies that, that are or have been acquired by bigger companies that have been sold off. Like, what was it? Um, uh, trying to think of the name of the company that bought all of the ABB assets, Femur out of Italy, right? Like, Oh, well, with Hitachi, then picking up some of the other, yeah, right, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Power yeah. Electronics was bought by, bought another company that was then bought by ABB and now owned by Femur and like, God, chasing that. You're right. That's just a nightmare. Yeah. Yep. Forget it. Yeah. Hmm. Piper. It's such a joy to get a chance to chat with someone who is so conscious of the way that your work empowers and touches the world. Uh, as a reminder for everyone else, we've been chatting with Piper Foster Wilder, founder and CEO of 60 Hertz Energy. Look forward to seeing you, although this will post after SPI or RE+. Plus. I look forward to seeing you in Anaheim. Hope that you had a ton of visitors at the booth and uh, I look forward to catching up uh, again in the future. Tell me when all of the Suncast tribe reaches out and and the ways that you are collaborating. Thank you, Nico. Thank you. It's always a joy to talk with you too. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior. What did you learn? I'd like to take a moment to say again, thank you to Piper for the generosity of taking her time and attention to be so thoughtful with her answers and help us learn. I really enjoyed being able to sit with another entrepreneur who is in the throes of startup life and ask thoughtful questions about how she is navigating building a team, building a product, and trying to achieve what we all want, which is to build something meaningful that others can use. Is there anything in particular that stood out to you? If so, I'd encourage you to go on to LinkedIn or maybe even Twitter and let Piper and I know what It is that stands out for you, not just about Piper's journey, but maybe about 60 Hertz, the product that she's created or the team that she's built and how she went about it. I was truly inspired by this conversation and I'm sure that you are as well. Look forward to hearing your comments and I appreciate that you take the time to give them. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow PhiloMath, can find the resources and highlights and social media links, book recommendations, and so much more from this and every other discussion on Suncast on our blog at mysuncast.com. Just click on the episodes If you're looking to be in more community with folks like Piper and myself and the hundreds of others who've joined us on the show, I would encourage you to go to mysuncast.com forward slash community and join our Discord server where we like to say it's the hallway, it's the back channel for the industry. And certainly that's true at our many trade shows, but it is a place where you can get that alpha insight from the folks that are on the front lines. A lot of my friends and industry peers who have also chosen to jump in and join our community and add value every single day from investment advice to career and 
hiring advice, you'll find it in our community at mysuncast.com forward slash community. That'll take you down the yellow brick road to be invited to our Discord server. I want to thank our sponsors once again for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.